like to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're studying the parable of the prodigal son together. And tonight will be our last study on the prodigal in the parable of the prodigal son. Tomorrow night and, and Sabbath evening, Sabbath night, uh, we're going to look at what it is that makes the elder brother who he is and how that we don't want to be elder brothers, not in that sense in any case. And so tonight is our last look at the parable, at the prodigal in the parable. So we're in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at verse uh, 22. We began to look at that verse last night, verse 22. The father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Now we already know what the best robe is all about. We've been looking at that all week long. It's wonderful. It's the righteousness of Jesus. It's a righteousness that has been that has been formed by Jesus Christ and by his father with no no help from anyone here in this world below and it's offered to us as a free gift. We know that it is the robe of <clears throat> that it is the robe of Christ's righteousness and there's not one thread of human devising. To me that is encouraging. I hope that's encouraging to you. Because if there was one thread of human devising, we would never know whether we could have assurance. We would never know whether we've really done our part. We would never know whether we've prayed enough or whether we've studied the Bible enough or whether we've witnessed enough to be acceptable to God. But no, we're already acceptable to God. Because Jesus went to the cross and paid the full penalty, turns around and offers us his own righteousness, not one thread of human devising. So we may receive the gift and thank him for it. And then we can put forth all the efforts we want in doing good works, in being good, in reading the Bible, in praying and all the rest. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't contribute anything to our salvation. Ah, but you know, effort is good, isn't it? Yeah, if you're ever going to build yourself up in strength, you'd better make an effort. <laughs> you've got to lift a few weights, or you've got to walk a few miles, or you've got to play a few sports or something, and we can understand that. And any time we put forth an effort, even in spiritual things, there are gains to be, to be uh, gained, I guess, is the only way I can say it. It's a blessing. It really is. Yeah. So we understand what the robe is, we understand the symbolism of that, and, and it's a tremendous blessing to us. But now let's move on to the ring. Do you know that there's symbolism here? What does the ring symbolize? What did you say? A family checkbook? Well, you're going to have to explain that one to me later. <laughs> Ah, there you are, there you are. Mm -hmm. I'll have you turn with me. He hit it right on, actually. I didn't understand at first. Um, turn with me to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. But before we read, we can reiterate the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph. Joseph was a bit of a spoiled boy in the house of Jacob because Joseph came from Jacob's favorite wife. If, if Joseph hadn't, excuse me, if Jacob hadn't been such a cheat, 
If he hadn't been such a supplanter <clears throat> and gone around to cheat his brother and lie to his father and connive with his mother and, and found himself where he found himself with his uncle Laban, I believe that the Lord would not have allowed things to happen to Jacob the way they did. But you know the Bible says, right, that with what measure we meet it shall be measured to us again. And because Jacob had had you know, it had been easy for him to be a cheat and a supplanter. The Lord says, you know, you've got to taste some of your own medicine. And so he ended up falling in love with a beautiful woman, Rachel. I think that was her name, Rachel. And you remember on his wedding day, he got cheated. Yeah, so that he could feel what he had made other people feel. Well, he still loved Rachel a lot, a lot and so he was willing to work another seven years for her. She was his favorite wife. He ended up with 12, 12 children and Joseph was his favorite because Joseph was the firstborn that came from Rachel and he treated him differently. He treated him a little bit better and eventually he made him a coat of many colors which uh, was showing that Joseph would be the prince of the family. And the other boys caught the insinuation here and they were not happy with this thing. Not only that, eventually Joseph had a couple of dreams and, you know, if he had had any intelligence, I wouldn't say intelligence, if he had been a little bit wiser in his choice of words, if he had been a little bit more discerning, he would not have been so upfront with his dreams. But he was an open kid, he had an open heart, he didn't have anything to hide. I had a dream last night, let me tell you what the dream was. And, you know, all the sheaves are bowing down to his sheave and... and something like that, and all the brothers caught the insinuation there also that eventually he would be the prince and everyone would be bowing to him. And even his father went around scratching his head like, not really, Joseph, even your mother and I are going to bow to you? Uh, and his brothers were really not happy with this thing. Well, eventually Jacob sent his boys to feed his sheep somewhere far away and they hadn't heard from them in a long time so he sent Joseph with food and just to find out how these boys are doing. And when he came over the hill, when he did finally find them, they saw him coming and they said, Aha, here comes the dreamer. Let's see what happens to his dream by the time we're done with him. And they had planned to kill him. But Reuben didn't like the idea of killing him. And so he convinced his brothers that they should put him in a pit. Reuben goes for a walk or wherever he goes. He was gone some time. By the time he comes back, Joseph has been sold to the Ishmaelites and now he's becoming a slave on the way to Egypt. It had been Judah's idea. Judah's the Jew, you understand. And he saw a few dollars coming down the, the track there and he thought, ah, I've got a better idea. After all, he is our brother and we shouldn't kill him. I mean, we can make a few bucks too. <laughs> and so that's what they did. They sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites who brought him to Egypt and there he was sold to Potiphar. And in Potiphar's house, he rose to the top. He came to the place where Potiphar didn't know what was in his house because Joseph was such a manager and so honest and he won Potiphar's house. But Potiphar had a wife and the wife took a shine to Joseph and she really tried to get close to him. And one day they're both in the same house and Potiphar's wife lays hold on Joseph's jacket and doesn't let go. And Joseph leaves the jacket in her hands and flees the house. And she has the evidence. This man attempted to molest me or something. 
And that left, of course, Potiphar with a decision to make to save face because in those days a slave would have been killed right on the spot except that Potiphar understood his wife. Potiphar knew Joseph. He knew exactly what happened. He wasn't going to kill Joseph because he knew that it would be his wife's fault. And he, to save face, put Joseph in a dungeon. And Joseph was in this dungeon, as far as I can tell, it's almost 10 years. It's a long time, isn't it? Yeah, he was just a young man. And everything that was happening to him was bad. Um, you know, it was just a series of bad luck, if we want to say it that way. Not knowing that there's a God behind the scenes who organizes, like I, I recited not so long ago, in Heavenly Places, page 265. He is the orderer of all our experiences. How many? All. I assume that Joseph was close enough to God to understand that there's a God in heaven and that he is the orderer of all our experiences. And so he didn't lose heart. He didn't lose his mind. He didn't lose any hope. He just kept looking to Jesus, kept looking to God for a reason why all of these things were happening because there was a reason. Eventually, the baker and the butler find themselves in the dungeon and Joseph is in charge now of the prison. He, he's a prisoner himself, but he's in charge. One day he's making his rounds and he comes to the cell where he finds the baker and the butler and they have long faces and he says, what in the world? How is it that you're looking so sad today seeing that you're in such a nice place? And <laughs> they had reason because they had had dreams, you, you understand, and so J Joseph said, hey, I can interpret your dreams, not to worry. The butler tells his dream, three whatever. I forgot the dream. Anyways, he tells the dream, and Joseph interprets it. And in three days, he said, you will be released, and you are going to go back to work for the Pharaoh. And the baker found himself encouraged because there was a good turnout for the butler. And he said, well, what about my dream? And Joseph said, yes. In three days, you will lose your head. And he did lose his head. As the butler is leaving, Joseph accosts him and he says, Wait a minute, listen. You're going to be free. You're going to be returned to the, to the Pharaoh. You're going to be working with him. Remind the Pharaoh that I am here. I'm a Hebrew and I'm a slave and I don't belong in here. It was all, you know, I've been set up. Please tell Pharaoh about me. So did the butler ever tell Pharaoh about Joseph? Well, yes, he did. Two years later, <laughs> two years later, the Pharaoh has a dream, seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, the seven skinny cows eat the fat cows. The Pharaoh knows it's an important dream, but he has no clue what it means. He calls in his wise men and his magicians and his soothsayers or whoever it is that he has over there. He calls them in to interpret the dream. No one can interpret the dream. And then the butler goes, I, I, I know a man who can interpret dreams because he did interpret my dreams, but he's in the dungeon. And the Pharaoh says, have him come up. So Joseph comes up. Not only does he interpret the dream, but he is able to tell the Pharaoh how to manage the crisis that is coming upon them. And the Pharaoh was quite taken by that. Now, I have reason in my own head, in any case, to believe that the Pharaoh was a very, very young individual. Because you remember Moses, excuse me, Joseph, when he was about, oh, some many years later, said, I was a father to the Pharaoh. You remember he said that? 
Now, Joseph was only 30 years old when he was a father to the Pharaoh. So how old was the Pharaoh? And besides that, there had been an attempt on the Pharaoh's life. That's why the baker and the butler were in the dungeon. And so the Pharaoh, maybe very young, couldn't trust his own staff, couldn't trust his own people. Somebody wanted him dead. And there he finds a Hebrew who is really trustworthy. He probably, the Pharaoh probably had connection with Potiphar. Potiphar may have told him what this, what integrity was in this boy Joseph and this man Joseph. And so the Pharaoh decided that he would lean on Joseph because he was so dependable. Yeah, yeah. And he made him, what? The governor of Egypt. Now look with me, we're in Genesis chapter 41, and we're looking at verse 41. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. Now what is the token to that fact? Look at verse 42 and 43. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, Bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. Yeah. And what was the token that said that he was a ruler over all the land of Egypt? A ring. A ring of authority. That's what he said over there. Uh, Pastor Mathers. That's what he said. Yeah. The ring represents authority. Joseph came from the dungeon and in one day was the governor of Egypt. Can you imagine? Yeah. The prodigal son comes out of the pig pen and when he gets home that same day he is made equal with his father and, and the signal that he is was that his father puts a ring on his finger and he says that boy is, is my equal here on the farm or on the empire that we own here. And friends, you and I come out of the pig pen when we give our hearts to Jesus. And the Bible says we become kings and priests for God. Isn't that amazing? That's Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 to 7. It's probably verse, verse no, it's 5 and 6. Yeah. In the um, scripture reading that we had earlier, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, As many as received him, to them gave he, now she read, to them gave he the right to be the Son of God. The King James Version says, to them gave he power. The real word is authority, right there, uh, the Greek word. Yeah. As many as receive him, the moment you receive him, the moment you come out of the pig pen of sin and you accept the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then to you is given power to be the sons and the daughters of God. And power, power not just to live a Christian life, but to, to live a life of sacrifice and service and to live a life of Christian activity. This is what we want, isn't it? You can't add anything to the salvation that God has worked up for us. Ah, but we can work like crazy. We can. Because when we see what God means to us, when we see how good He has been to us, when we see how loving He is toward us, how forgiving, how patient, how willing to nurture us along, one of these days we're going to wake up and we're going to see Jesus for who He is and for what He's done. And it's going to turn our hearts toward home. 
And we're going to be eager, we're going to be enthusiastic, we're going to be workers for God. Turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, we see there a little one-verse parable in Mark chapter 13, which, is, which uh, I like, I love. Just one-verse parable, Mark 13, verse 34. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey. Who is the Son of Man in this parable? Jesus is, and he's going on a trip. How far is he going? He's going back to heaven, sure. He's speaking to his disciples, and they know who he is. He's the Son of God. He calls himself the Son of Man, and he's going on a far journey. He's going back home to heaven. Who left his house, the church, he leaves it down here below, and gave authority to his servants. To do what? Well, to work for God, right? Look at the next phrase and to every man his work. How many men? Which men? Ah, all who received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. To them gave he power. To them gave he authority. And to everyone he gives his work. Do you know that God has no unemployed servants? None. None. And there's no reason to be unemployed I'm not talking in a worldly sense there. I'm not talking about working in the mines or working in logging or, or a fishing boat or anything like that. But if we are children of God, there is no reason to be unemployed under God today. You remember Y2K? Are you all old enough? <laughs> yeah, Y2K. Somebody got a crazy idea that on... January 1, the year 2000, all the computers would crash and with the crash of all the computers, the whole world would implode and then everything would be in such chaos that we would be all returned to the caveman era because it would be so terrible. And do you remember what people did? Why? They hoarded beans and they hoarded water and they bought cabins in the woods and they bought guns and they bought ammunition and they bought all kinds of stuff waiting for Y2K. Did you do that? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because some of you may have done something like that. But I tell you what, I didn't do anything like that. On the strength of this verse, I could see right here that I had work to do for God before Y2K. And if Y2K for some strange reason turned out to be true and the whole world would be in chaos, all I knew is that I would still have work to do. I would probably have more work to do after Y2K than before. Isn't that true? Sure it is. And my God has always supplied all my needs. I don't care if the, word Im the world implodes or explodes. It doesn't matter to me because my prom the promise is still sure. My God shall supply all my needs. Is it true? It's true. Yeah. I, it, I, I often wonder how it is that more people are not working directly for the Lord. Why not? Well... I don't want to go to Africa. Well, you don't have to go to Africa. <laughs> well, you know, I've got work to do here and there and I've other things to do. And I don't know. I don't know. Somehow, somehow the answers don't resonate. Yeah. <clears throat> well, after all, I have to feed my family, right? Yeah. I was in Zambia one time and a young man showed up. He was coming from America. The young man was... South African, a white South African, and he'd come from America and he stayed a few days, visited with us, and then he left and went to South Africa. A week or two later, 
a young lady came from America, a blonde young lady, and she stayed a few days, and a few days later she was off to South Africa. I came to realize that she was on a hunt. Um, you know, the, the, this young man was running, and she was <laughs> running after him. She thought she'd found herself a husband, and she was going to to catch him eventually. Well, she did catch up with him, but it didn't work out. Well, what's amazing to me is that she was in South Africa where she caught up with him, and she stayed in South Africa for seven years. This young lady, and I'm not going to give her name because, you know, the Adventist world is not that big, and you may well know her, but in any case, she was one of the most, she was one of the best teachers I've ever heard on healthful, uh, healthful living. It didn't matter what you talked about. It didn't matter if it was charcoal or supplements or, or, uh, herbs, herbology. It didn't matter if it was natural remedies or hydrotherapy. It just didn't matter. She knew it and she was super, super good at teaching it. So she began to teach in South Africa our health message. She was so good that she began to get calls from everywhere, other countries and within South Africa, to teach and teach and teach. Well, eventually she ended up in a place called Soweto. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with South Africa. Soweto is a township, uh, how should I say, it's a ghetto outside of Johannesburg. There is a million people outside of Johannesburg living in tar paper shacks. Okay, the poorest of the poor. And if you happen to be white, you don't go near there because it's very, very, very dangerous. These poor people are very, very poor. And so she made her way. Now, this is a blonde, white girl, beautiful besides, and made her way into Soweto. How she survived, I don't know. She started giving classes to young uh, South African people, boys and girls, men and women, on health. And the, the people eventually began to ask, well, now that we're learning all of these things, how can we use this to make a living? Do you know what she answered? She said, all you have to do is very, very simple. All you have to do is go door to door, find out what the needs are in that home, try to meet the needs, work eight hours a day, and God will pay you. Is that true? Is that the kind of advice you could give? If you received that kind of advice, would you believe it? Would you take it? Yeah. Oh, friends, it is true. Sure. You cannot outgive God. And if, and if you have no work and you don't know what to do, go to your neighbors. Go door to door. Find out what's going on. See if there's anything you can do for them. It's amazing. But God will supply all your needs. Because the promise is true. And if you're working for God, you think the Lord will not supply your needs? And, and how will He supply your needs? What will He give you, do you think? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. This is a, another parable. This is a parable of a man who owns a vineyard. And he goes out to the city center or town center at uh, the first hour of the morning and he hires everyone that's there to work in his vineyard and he goes back at the third hour and he goes back at the sixth hour and he goes back at the ninth hour and he keeps on hiring everyone that's there to work in his vineyard the vineyard owner represents God the vineyard is the world and and he is making Christians he's drawing them in and he puts them to work in his vineyard well he returns at the eleventh hour in those days, people worked for 12 hours, you understand. It didn't make sense, it doesn't make sense, 
for a man to return to the city center and to hire everyone to come and work for one hour. Does it make sense? No, not in our thinking. But this is the parable. And by the way, we're living at the 11th hour. There's probably only a few minutes left in the 11th hour. Yeah. And what is God trying to say to us this evening? Go to work in my vineyard. Go to work in my vineyard. And I will pay you. That's what he says. Verse 6. This is Matthew 20, verse 6. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why stand ye here all day idle? They say to him, Well, because no man hired us. He said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. Now what's he going to pay them? Whatsoever is right. Mm -hmm. If you ever receive a call to work for the Lord, please don't ask, what are you going to pay me? Don't ever ask that question. It's an insult to God. God has already promised to meet all your needs. Don't go asking, how much are you going to pay me? God says, I will supply all your needs. Whatsoever is right, this is what I will give you. And, you know, everyone is not called to do the same thing. Some people are called to work for the church, in the ministry in the church. Some people are called to be co-porters. Some people are called in supporting ministries. And some people are called to be separate from all of that. They're all called to work, however. And everyone is not paid in the same currency. Did you know that? I think I, I shared with you not so long ago that when I used to work in the mines, I was making $100 a day. But when I went into supporting ministries, I was making $20 a month. Now, there's a huge difference between $100 a day and $20 a month. But let me tell you, I have never, ever, ever lacked anything. Never. And this is 40 years of it. And there's some people who will look at me and say, you're nuts. You're nuts because you don't have, you don't have a pension plan? You're nuts because you can't afford insurance? <laughs> hey, if God leads me this way and He's promised to supply all my needs, where do you suppose I'm going to lean? I'm going to listen to, to, to you who are telling me that I'm nuts? <laughs> or I'm going to listen to God who says, I'm going to supply all your needs? Yeah. Yes, I'm going to trust the Lord. I am not afraid. It's amazing how the Lord has supplied for me. I'm still in supporting ministries. You know we don't make wages there, right? We are volunteers. I'm the ASI president at zero wages. <laughs> at Eden Valley, we get a stipend, and it, you'd probably fall over if you knew what it was. Yeah. And the Lord not only supplies my need, you know, it's true I'm not 230 pounds. I'm pretty skinny, actually. But it's not because I don't eat enough. <laughs> Let me tell you. Yeah. And it's not because, hey, whatever. The Lord has given me a beautiful car. You would wonder, how can you be, how can you have the wages you have and you drive the car you're driving? Well, God gave it to me. What can I say? I didn't go out and buy it. I never would have bought it because I couldn't afford it. Yeah. It's just that way. The Lord is so good. The Lord doesn't think the way we think when it comes to economy. Can I show you something? Turn with me to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. I want you to see something about the way that God thinks about economy or finances. 
We're in Job chapter 1. You know the story. God calls the meetings, all the sons of God. Satan shows up because he's usurped Adam's authority. He considers himself now a son of God in this world. He's in charge of this world. He shows up at the meeting and God sees a wonderful opportunity and he challenges Satan. He says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that he is upright and perfect and all of that? We see that in verse 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, perfect and upright man, one that fears God and shuns evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, you've put a fence around him. You've made him the wealthiest man in the world. He is serving you for what he's gaining, getting from you. Can't you see it? Take away everything from him and you'll see that he will not serve you for nothing. And there's a lot of people who go to school, they get an education so that they can work for the church in order to have a steady paycheck. Now, all of that is not wrong, but if that's the only motive, I think there's something wrong. Yeah. Because if we don't want to serve God out of a heart to win souls and we only are serving God or going through the motions of serving God because we want a paycheck at the end of the day or the week or the month or whatever it is, then there's something wrong with the picture. And so Satan is accusing Job here of serving, of not serving God for nothing. He is serving God for what he can get out of God. And God says, okay, take everything from him. See what happens. And so Satan did that. He took everything from him. And what happened? Did Job curse God? No, he didn't. So the same thing happens all over again. And God challenges Satan again. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? And, and Satan says, yeah, yeah, right. Skin for skin. Touch his skin and you'll see he will curse you to your face. Did he do it? Oh, man, did he ever do it. And I don't know, it doesn't say in the Bible how long this thing lasted, but it was a long time. It was a long time. He was fully, thoroughly, completely tested. And in the end, Job could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He lost everything. He lost everything. He had nothing left. And he still served God with integrity. Would you? It's coming to that. Do you know that the book of Job is written for us to prepare us to know what it's going to be like in the time of trouble? I have a whole sermon. I should have brought it. Maybe I would share it with you. Yeah. Yeah. This is what the book of Job is all about. This is where we are headed. And if, friends, you're serving God for any other reason than that you love Him and that He has been able to put a new heart and a new spirit within you, then when we come to that time when God wipes you out of everything, and I say God, it isn't God, Satan, yeah. Then we're going to see who are God's pastors in the world. Who are God's workers in the world. Do you see God's economy here? You remember Galatians chapter 6 verse 3? If a man thinks he is something when he is nothing. Now who did God die for? What did God die for? Nothing. <laughs> really? He went through all of that for you and I who are nothing? Well, if God would do all of that for nothing... Don't you suppose that we could serve him also? Now I know, I've twisted that to a point which is ridiculous because God doesn't think we are nothing. We're worth everything to him. 
were worth everything to him. But still in all, what did he get out of that? You know, he got me. <laughs> Most of you wouldn't want me. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see here. Where are we? Let's go back to the parable of the prodigal son. And after putting a ring on his finger, he put shoes on his feet. Now, the shoes happen to have some symbolism also. What do the shoes symbolize? And you ought to know, I think, fairly easily. That's right, the gospel message. Go with me to Romans chapter 10. We're just going to look at that quickly. I think you put your finger right on it, and it happens to be true. Romans chapter 10. We're looking, we're going to start with verse 13, only because I love verse 13, but we'll start there, Romans chapter 10. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, it is. I remember, uh, you know, I have a son. My son will be 40 in a month. He's the youngest in the family. Always a um, quiet private and closed. You never knew where he was. Just couldn't tell where he was spiritually because he wouldn't say. You never knew. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't off. Other boys couldn't drag him away to get into nonsense. He wouldn't go. But to know where he was spiritually, you just couldn't know. You just couldn't know. And I remember one time we were we were walking and we were taking a walk together here in Canada. We were on the road. It was snowing in the middle of winter. And I wanted to get close to my own son. It was just hard to get close to my own son, you know. And so finally, I didn't know exactly what to say because he just... Every time I spoke to him about spiritual things, he would freeze. Like he didn't know how to respond and it made him uncomfortable. I didn't want to make him uncomfortable. You can push kids too far. And so I didn't know how to approach it. But one day we're walking down the road and I said to him, I said, now listen. I said, I really don't know what you're going to do with your life. I can't, I can't read you. I don't know. Uh, but I said, so I said, you know, you may throw it away sometime. You may get yourself in trouble. I just want you to remember one Bible verse. And it was Psalms 50, verse 15. Um, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. I said, just memorize this one verse, because if you throw away your life somewhere down the road, you're going to be in trouble. There's no doubt about it. If you could just remember this one verse, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Yeah. This is what I see here. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should tell you another side. You know, you kind of like, I got the idea some of you like stories. And since I've gone in that, that wasn't part of the sermon, this little illustration here. Uh, but my son grew up. We brought him to Africa when he was 14. He's still there. He's still a missionary. And now he's the president of Kibidula Farm Institute a big missionary place teaching a lot and whatever Um, one time he came back to America he was 26 he had gone to Andrews to receive all his flight um, tickets he he has all the tickets he can fly anything I suppose although he doesn't practice much he doesn't fly much because he's so busy being the president and all that then he came back to America 
uh, when he was 26 years old, 25 years old, um, to get his airplane mechanics ticket. And so he was, he was in Oregon for two years, and I thought, you know, he'll find a wife. <laughs> I, I was, you know, he was already 25, and he'd had no girlfriend, really, and I thought, yeah, may, maybe he'll find a wife, but he didn't. Um, but here's what happened. And I don't tell this story very often, but I just want to show you what happened. He called me one day. Now, I was living in Chattanooga at the time. He calls me one day, and he says, Dad, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, really? My son needs to talk to me? <laughs> you know, he was always so careful and so, so guarded. <clears throat> I said, okay, what's up? Well, he said, I fl- every weekend I rent an airplane. I fly up to Washington with my two buddies. They have two sisters over there. They're girlfriends. They visit with these two sisters, and I, I don't have a girlfriend, and so I'm there for the weekend with them all. Uh, but the two sisters have a mother, and I spend some time with her, and I'm getting the picture right away, like you're getting the picture probably right away. And, uh, you know, he's not saying very much, so I just, straight out, I said, do you love her? And he said, yes. And you want my advice? Yes. Okay. (laughs) He's 26 years old by this time. I said, um, I am not going to tell you what to do. You're 26 years old. She is 40. So that's 14 to 15 years difference. She's older. I said, um, if you take her, I will love her as much as I will love anyone else. But I said, take a moment to reflect. You love children, and he really does. He always loved children. He always had a baby in his arms in Africa. And I said, she's done. Her children are already teenagers. She's not going to have any more children. When you're 45, she'll be 60. And that's not going to be fun. As a matter of fact, I really think that if you're going to if you're going to marry her, you're going to live to regret it. However, it's your choice. I don't want to tell you what to do. But if you want to know what I would do, at least looking from outside objectively at this situation, here's what I would do. I said, here's what you do. You turn around and you walk away. Just turn around and walk away. Now, this is going to be the hardest thing you ever did in your life. I told him that because I know your heart is already knit. You love her. She's attracted to you. This is going to be hard. Your heart is going to be torn. You're going to suffer more than you've ever suffered before. I know this. But if you want to do what I think is right, just turn around and walk away. I said, she will call you. She will cry. She'll be at your door. She will send you email. She will do everything she can. She's going to come after you. And it's going to be a lot of tears and it's going to be really hard. Just keep walking. And so I left it with him and I wondered what he would do. That's what he did. He turned around. He went. And she came after him. He went to Africa. She came to Africa. You know, it was, it was a pursuit like I expected. Yeah, but he kept going. And you know, the Lord 
rewarded him, he, he met another young lady, and I don't know, should I tell you that story? <laughs> Boy, I, I might stretch this thing pretty far. Yeah. I went to Africa one time, and I went to Zambia. When I was in Zambia, I saw this redhead young lady. She was 20 years old, and she walked like an angel. That's the one thing I remember about her. Beautiful as can be, walked like an angel. And so I told my son, who was in Tanzania, this is 700 miles over, I said, there's a girl in Zambia you need to meet. And he's like, stay out of it. <laughs> I'm not interested. Okay, fine. A year later, this young girl this, went back to South Africa because she's from South Africa. And uh, she decided she would go to school, find a husband, and then come back up north to Africa to be a missionary. But the Lord said to her, go back to Africa. And she said, Lord, I can't go back to Africa single. I'll never find anyone over there, you know. And the Lord said, go back. And she said, Lord, I'll just go to school. I'll find a husband. And when we get married, then we'll go back and we'll do missionary. And the Lord says, go back. And then finally she gave up. It took two weeks of struggling. She just gave up and gave herself to the Lord and said, I will be a missionary in Africa. I will never be married. <laughs> I, I submit to it. And she returned to Zambia to be a missionary. Well, a friend of mine, Stephen Grabner, he, um, he, he needed to go to Kenya and so with his family. And he asked, her, her name is Marie Antoinette, by the way. He asked her if she would like to go with their family to Kenya. And on their way through Tanzania, they stopped at Kibidula. And there, there was a lot of young people from Norway. There was a whole school that had come. They were having a blast because there were so many young people around. And they were going to go to a game park. And my son came to the group that was going to the game park. And he says, I can't go to the game park. I've got too much to do. But it's worse than that. I need to ask one of you to volunteer to stay with me and do this work. And she volunteered. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> yeah. Today they have three children and they're still missionaries in Africa and she is seven years younger than him as opposed to 15 years older. That's a difference of 23 years and I'm pretty sure he'll be happier with this setup than he, w he would have been. Yeah. Now I don't know why I told you all that. Oh yeah, it was <laughs> Romans chapter 10 verse 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And by the way, he married the right one. She is very, very, very spiritual. She is an amazing teacher and she has opened him up so that today he is free. He is free to talk about the Lord and his experience and all the rest. And I can just, I can just praise the Lord. Okay. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Ah, friends, wouldn't you like to be one of them? Ought you not to be one of them? Isn't this a calling to all, God has no unemployed servants. He gives to everyone his work. And what do you think the work is? 
Oh, there's all kinds of work that needs to be done in the church, and that's true. But it all contributes to the spread of the gospel. And how beautiful are the feet of them that bring good tidings to the souls who need it so badly. Friends, listen, I don't know if you heard Dr. Neal earlier this morning. He left me with such an impression of the mess we're in. (laughs) No, we're God's people and we're in a mess. Yeah, what do you think the mess is like outside of this room? You know, out there in the world where they have no God, where they have no hope, where they, have, they can't see a solution to the mess they're in. Now, sometimes they don't see the mess, and, and that's probably merciful. However, it isn't merciful forever. If you don't see your need, you'll never call upon the name of the Lord to find, to find help. And the Lord, wants to, the Lord wants to use us. Let's go back to Luke chapter 15, and I'll try not to get sidetracked anymore. And we're going to finish what we started here. We're in Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 23 and 24 in Luke 15. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now what does the feast represent? What does this symbolize? Marriage, huh? Well, it's not marriage. No, it's heaven. It's heaven. We're going to go to heaven, and there's going to be a long table, and there's going to be an amazing feast, and there's going to be such merriment and such happiness, and Jesus will serve us, and everything is going to be so wonderful. We're all going to sigh a collective sigh of relief. Here we are. We've made it. No more worry. No more doubt. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more death. No more disease. No more accidents. It's just going to be so ah, great, isn't it? But friends, should there be no joy in this world below? What do you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. We look at verse 16 and then verse 18. First Thessalonians chapter 5. And, hey, I know that you know there's joy down here below. Yeah. That joy is blood-bought at the cross of Calvary. It's amazing that there should be any joy in this world at all. But there is. But it all comes from Jesus. Verse 16. While we're here in this world, rejoice evermore. That's a command. That's how you should be. That's how you should be all the time. Verse 18. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything give thanks. Now, doesn't God know that some of the messes we can get into? Doesn't He know how bad things can get? Well, friends, it isn't what God doesn't know. It's what we don't know. Don't you know that God would never ask you to give thanks for anything that would do you harm? Don't you know that? Ministry of Healing 255. Watch what it says. This command, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. This command is an assurance that even the things which appear to be against us will work for our good. God did not bid us be thankful for that which would do us harm. How many things did He bid us be thankful for? Everything. So then how many of them will do us harm? None? Really? It's true. What a wonderful God. It's true. But it's true if you believe it. You know that, don't you? Yeah. My God 
is good. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Luke chapter 10 verse 19. All things will work together for good to them that love the Lord. And Desire of Ages 2.24, if we could see the end from the beginning, we would choose no other way to be led. That's what it says. Can you imagine uh, going to heaven and looking back on your earthly experience and saying, oh yeah, here I can see where God made a mistake in my case. Are you going to be able to say that after you've gone to heaven? No, God doesn't make any mistakes in your case. Can you imagine going to heaven before you were born and choosing your own path? Do you think you could choose a path for yourself better than the path that God has chosen for you? This is not to say that every decision you make is great. You make a lot of mistakes and they are painful and there are consequences to all of that. But let me tell you what. God knows who you are. God knows where you came from. Once you put yourself in the hands of God and you love Him, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. And nothing comes to you to harm you. Even though in appearance... It's that way. If you go with me to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. This is the story of Joseph. We started with Joseph. Joseph is the governor of Egypt. Jacob and his family are suffering through the famine. And so Jacob sends ten, his ten sons, not eleven. There's one he keeps at home, Benjamin. He sends ten sons to Egypt to get some food. But when they get there, they mean they meet a pretty mean governor <laughs> of Egypt. And he's pretty hard on them. But he's testing them to see who they are. And by the time it's all over, he's got Simeon in prison, and he sends the boys home, and he says to them, don't come back unless you bring Benjamin. Now the boys go home, and they know for sure they can't ask their father for Benjamin, and so they decide to say nothing, they pray, I suppose they pray, like mad, that the famine will end before they run out of food. But God's in charge of this thing, and there's no way the famine is going to end before they have to go back to, to Egypt, you understand. And so they wait and wait and wait until it's the last minute, and finally they approach, approach Jacob. And notice what happens in verse 36 when they tell Jacob, listen, we've got to bring Benjamin or there's no use going. Verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and now you will take Benjamin away. Watch. All these things are against me. Were they? No. God was organizing to take Jacob and his family to Egypt, to Goshen, so that they could grow into a nation unmolested. Everything was for them. But you see, as human beings, we can't see very well, can we? We don't know what's happening and why the things are happening to us. But God has a plan. Just like He had a plan for Jacob, He has a plan for you. Every single one in this room. And He will work out His plan. And it won't always appear to us to be the plan we would choose for, a cert, for sure. But it is always the best plan. And none of these things are against us. They're all for us. Did you lose your job? Yeah. It's not against you. The Lord may be planning to give you a better job. Yeah. Did you get sick? Oh, no. I don't want to get sick. Do you? I don't either. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, why is that happening? No, I understand. I understand. Sometimes we do foolish things and we get ourselves into a situation like this. But is God dead because we got ourselves into a situation? No, no. No, no. We have a God in heaven. He's in control. Put yourself in the hands of God. Finally, let's not forget at whose expense was all the feasting and the rejoicing. In the parable, who is it that dies? It's the fatted calf. <laughs> Don't you know? Yeah. Now, what did the fatted calf deserve to be killed for? I mean, couldn't they have had a feast without killing the fatted calf? No, they couldn't. Not in this parable. Because Jesus says, well, Paul says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So that we could feast and rejoice Jesus rejoiced to die. That's the fatted calf. Jesus is the fatted calf in the parable. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. Jesus is the fatted calf in our life. His sacrifice makes it so that I can rejoice eternally in heaven, makes it so I can enjoy camp meeting at Pugwash. Yeah, it's all blood-bought at the cross of Calvary. Child, is there any way to say thank you to him, do you think? He deserves our thanks, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, Lord, we can see, we can see that all we enjoy, you paid for. And without you and without the cross, we'd have not life nor joy in anything. We can see that our salvation is blood-bought and we owe it all to you. Heavenly Father, if you would die for us, then put the same spirit within us that we might be willing to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and die too, that we might be a blessing to everyone around. Ah, Lord, this is what we want and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.